0: Okay, tonight we're going to be talking about the Midbar. Now, this is the first Parsha of the book of Numbers. So it begins in Numbers 1-1. Now, we call it Numbers for one thing because we have a lot of numbering of the tribes and we have a lot of naming of the leaders of the tribes and so on. And in this Article that I have here, I really encourage all of you, if you want to, to go to this address on the internet if you can. Does everybody see that? It says the Camp of the Mishkan in the browser. Can everybody hear me? Okay, I think I'm getting some response. Uh, You can't see it. Okay, just a second. just one moment okay. Okay. okay now can everybody see it okay great so this is an article that I wrote a few years ago about three years well let's see here I guess it's uh, four years ago now on Parshat Bamidbar and this shows the layout of the Mishkan of the encampment around the Mishkan goes step by step through all of the different descriptions that Parshat Bamidbar gives about the encampment around the Mishkan now you had around the Mishkan you had the camp of to the right here facing the east was Yehuda, Yehuda's camp and with him you had Issachar and Zavulan and then to the south you had Ruvain with Shimon and God. to the north you had Dan with Asher and Naphtali And to the west, you had Ephraim with Manasseh and uh, Binyamin. So the children of Rachel were facing the west. They were on the west. And the children of Leah were on the right. And you had them also to the south. And you had some of them to the... And then you had them also with the... Well, they were... God was one of the sons of the handmaiden. Right, okay. Alright, so, you had it divided like that. Okay, so this was the division around the Mishkan, the encampment around the Mishkan. Now, this is not exactly what I want to talk about tonight, there's something very interesting that, that I want to bring out here about this encampment. It goes into the whole thing about the numbers and so on. But in the second chapter after it talks about all of the the different princes, the heads of the houses and so on that were encamped around the Mishkan and it gives this layout. So you see the layout here around the Mishkan. So in the second chapter of the Parsha in the 34th verse it says the sons of Israel did so according to all that God commanded Moshe so Did they camp next to their standard, so did they journey, each one according to his families, according to his father's house. So on the on the east you had Yehuda's standard, and his standard was the lion. On the west you had Ephraim's standard, and Ephraim's standard was the ox. On the north you had Dan whose standard was a serpent or it could have even been seen as an eagle and on the south you had Reuven's standards which was a man a man holding the mandrakes now interestingly a little aside here is that when you look at these standards we see something else the encampment of of the tribes around the Mishkan is a copy of what we see in the book of Ezekiel of the chayot the animals that were around the throne of Hashem the lion the ox the man's face and the eagle so the serpent and the eagle are kind of corresponding with each other here and they encamped around the throne of Hashem we have this idea of the Mishkan paralleling the throne of Hashem like this and that the tribes camping around the Mishkan we're paralleling the chayot in heavens, the angels that were like the, the animal faces that we see around the throne of Hashem. And that's the first point that I made in this. And you see in the second diagram here that you have that idea of the chayot that camped around the throne of Hashem. And then there were the various, the four houses, of the Kohanim that were the inner camp around the Mishkan inside the camp of the Israelites. And the Kohanim were on the on the east the Gershonites were on the west the Kohathites were on the south and the Merarites were on the north and they were in charge of various parts of the tabernacle bringing them as they journeyed through the wilderness each part of the tabernacle were entrusted to one of these families and that's also very significant as you'll read if you want to print this off you'll see that so I really encourage you to go ahead and print this out and you'll be able to read it at your leisure but this isn't really what I wanted to talk about tonight I want to talk about something a little bit more uh, into this idea about the tribes themselves, and how they camped around the Mishkan, and what this meant. And we get that from this verse, this, the second chapter in the 34th verse, and it's in the commentary that Rob Hirsch wrote. So He says, If we picture for ourselves the grouping of the Jewish people according to the camps, as directed in these verses, we see that, in the front, now the, the entrance of the Mishkan was in the front, in the east. And the Kohenim were here, camped with Judah. So you had the kings and the priests camped at the entrance of the tabernacle. So on that side, beneath the standard of Judah, the tribes of Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. At the right, toward the south, if we're looking east, Beneath the standard of Ruvain are the tribes of Ruvain, Shimon, and Gad. At the left, toward the north, beneath the standard of Dan, are the tribes Dan, Asher, and Naphtali, in the rear facing Judah. And beneath the standard of Ephraim are the tribes of Ephraim, Manasseh, and Binyamin. Each of the three tribes that form the camp of Judah, leading the march through the wilderness, has been characterized in both material and spiritual terms. The patriarch, Jacob, on his deathbed, and this is found in Genesis 49, verses 8 through 10, already visualized Judah as the tribe leading all the rest, with the scepter, which symbolizes the authority of the ruler, and the stylus, with which the law is recorded. Issachar was the tribe of agriculture, with sufficient leisure also to cultivate learning. And this was how he described Issachar in verses 14 and 15 of that same chapter. Zvulin was described in verse 13 as the tribe of commerce. And at the same time, according to the Song of Deborah in Judges 5.14, the sons of Zvulin were those who wield the writer's staff. They cultivated the literature of the people. Thus, the camp of Judah which traveled in the lead united all the essential attributes upon which the material and spiritual welfare of the nation depended: the sceptre and the law, agriculture and scholarship, commerce and lead and literature. These two groups, symbolizing the specified spiritual and material attributes combined in the lead camp, are divided into into two subordinate camps which follow the main camp on either side. Ruvain, Shimon, and God comprise the nation's right hand, as it were. Ruvain, the firstborn, is endowed with ample intellectual gifts, and with keen sense of justice, but also with softness of character, which makes him incapable of acting as the leader of the nation. Assigned to flank him are Shimon, the impulsive avenger of personal honor and God as sharp as an arrowhead to strike back against unprovoked attacks and this is in the blessing of, of Yaakov in Genesis 49 3-7 and in verse 19 thus we have marching at the right hand of Judah tribal entities symbolizing the courage to fend off insults and attacks but all under that hand of gentle mercy of Reuven marching at Judah's left were Dan, symbol of cunning, and this is in Jacob's blessing in verses 16 and 17 Asher, re- representing refinement of taste this is in verse 20 and it's also found in the Talmud in tractate Yoma 76b which says wine and aromatic spices made me wise, and Naphtali in the verse 21 in that chapter in Genesis symbolizing eloquence. Thus, while the standard of Judah implies tendency to seek power, there was to be a splendid unfolding of spiritual attainments beneath the standard of Dan. The symbolism of the tribes of Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. While camp to the west, facing the eastern sector of the camp of Judah, beneath the standard of Ephraim, is not as clear as that of the other tribes. Actually, Ephraim and Manasseh together represent the tribe of Joseph. But what Jacob said on his deathbed with regard to Joseph in Genesis 49:22 referred to Joseph personally more than to the tribe that was to descend from him. What Jacob said in 4819 concerning Ephraim and Manasseh indicates an unfolding power, particularly in the case of Ephraim, about whom Jacob predicted that he would become very great and his descendants would complete the other nations. He said, Maleh Hagoim, the fullness of the nations, was how he described Ephraim which we believe we may interpret to mean that the tribe of Ephraim would serve as an armor reinforcing the defenses of the other tribes. Now this is the opinion of Rob Hirsch here. Thus, in the case of Ephraim, we probably will have to think symbolically in terms of valor, which for the sake of the nation's well-being should take up its position facing the camp of Judah in the lead. Judah is to be in the east, in Ephraim, in the west. In other words, Judah is supposed to be leading and Ephraim is supposed to be heading the, up the rear. Thus, too, the Song of Asaph in Psalm 8, verse 2 and 3, sees Israel's salvation depending upon the achievements of Joseph. And Asaph prays, O shepherd of Israel, incline thine ear. Thou who leadest Joseph like a flock, O thou... Who are enthroned among the Kruvim, the cherubs, shine forth before Ephraim and Binyamin and Manasseh. Stir up thy omnipotence and come to their aid for thine own sake. When later in our history, the house of Joseph, instead of seeking to complement Judah, came into conflict with the latter and usurped its authority of leadership, When Joseph planted his standard, not behind Judah, but at the head of the nation, it spelled the nation's downfall. Itself estranged from the testimony of the law, and from its dwelling place, the house of Joseph perished, dragging down to ruin with it the ten twelfths of the nation that had joined it. So this is really what I want to discuss tonight, is about the two kings of Israel. Uh, the king descending from the house of Judah, which is the house that was supposed to have the king descend from it, and the house of Joseph. Now, when the brothers decided that they were going to sell Joseph, there had been a conflict, and it was like a conflict of a worldview. Judah saw the tribes. He saw the nationhood. He, saw, he had like an internal view, an inward view. Yosef, on the other hand, had an external view. He saw the world. And indeed, he actually became a world leader. He became a ruler of the world. Egypt be- rose to be a superpower under his leadership. Only the par- Only the pharaoh was higher than him. But in truth, it was Yosef who was ruling Egypt. He was a world leader. His dreams that his brothers would come and bow down to him, that the sun and the moon would bow down to him, all of these things that he dreamed really did come true. All of the symbolism that he had seen really did in fact happen. And he became a world leader. He became the one who essentially saved the world from perishing through starvation with the salmon that went all around the world, the new world. The people had to come to Egypt in order to get food. And so all of the wealth of the world poured into Egypt because of the wisdom of Yosef. So we look at Yosef a little bit and we see that Yosef was a very interesting character. He was very wise he was a man who had tremendous, deep abiding faith unshakable in Hashem I mean the things that happened to him, if we'll think about it in our own personal lives the challenges that he met, and he was only 17 years old when he was sold into slavery most of us would have said oh, Hashem has deserted me and would have given up but he didn't he, he held on to his faith through all of the things that he went through and he ascended to be this world leader. Now that is a type that we look at. That is the type. He was a king. And that is the type of the king that is called Yosef. Or we call him Ben Yosef. Mashiach Ben Yosef. And we have another type. And that other type is personified in the son of Yehuda of Judah descended from that tribe and that was David David was the king of Israel in Israel where he defended Israel from all of the enemies around and he built Israel and his heart was to build the temple he he conquered Jerusalem and he made Jerusalem the capital and so here was the king this was the Mashiach and he is the one that we look to, and he is the one that we all think of when we think of Mashiach. But in in truth, in Jewish thought, there are two manifestations of Mashiach, and we have this on the east and on the west. We have this in these two personified in these two people, Yehuda, who is the forerunner of David. Is a little bit more subtle. He was the leader. He was the one that the brothers looked to, and we do see his leadership, yes. But the real leader, the real king who descended from him, the one that Judah was, was like the 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 model for. And then he he was the one that would look forward to. He was going to be the forebearer of was David. And David is the one we always think of as Messiah, And so, you know, in your past life, you always hear this the in line of the family of David. Because this is the one we think of. But, in Jewish thought, in Jewish literature, we talk about two Messiahs. And the forerunner of the Messiah that we think of as David is actually Joseph. And we're told David could not become the king of Israel until there was a first, it was first on the throne, a child, a king who was descended from Rachel. And this first king was, of course, from the tribe of Benjamin. So here you have Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. Look at this. So, There was this idea, we could even say it was like Rachel. Rachel is the temporal. First there has to be this one. But before that even, we had one who was a leader, Yosef. And then the son of Yosef was Joshua, who led the people into the land of Israel. So he was the first leader in the land of Israel, was actually uh, from the tribe of Ephraim. And so this was, in a way, you could say, he was the first Mashiach ben Yosef. Mashiach ben Yosef. I'm going to tell you a secret. Mashiach ben Yosef is something that has kind of been, it's kind of an inner, inner secret. It's become more known now, in our day. But it's kind of an inner Jewish secret. And we're told Mashiach bin Yosef comes into the world in every generation. He comes into the world many times. And Mashiach bin Yosef fails. And he dies. Time after time after time he comes into the world generation after generation he messes up. He fails. And one of the real examples of Mashiach bin Yosef the king descended from Yose, who is a failure, real failure, is Jeroboam ben Nabat. He was the one, referred to by Rav Hirsch here, when he talks about the splitting of the kingdoms. We always blame Jeroboam ben Nabat. Because at the time when King Solomon had died, and his son Rehoboam became the king of Judah, the king of all of Israel. There was this schism in the nation. And Jeroboam bin Nabat was actually anointed by the prophet at the instruction of Hashem. That he and he was the only one, the only one of the kings of the north was actually chosen to rule in a righteous way. But unfortunately He made a really bad decision. And he was afraid. That the people would go back to the descendants of David. They would go back to the house of David. And so he wanted to make sure they didn't. And so what did he do? He built a place of worship for them in Bethel. And what did he do? He erected a golden calf. In Bethel. And in Dan. There were two of them. Now there's a lot of controversy about what was this. And in fact the tribes, the, the brothers when they were talking about whether they were what they were going to do with Yosef they were looking to the future and they saw something that really troubled them. And it was this smack of idolatry. Although Yosef himself was completely clean of it, there was this something there that was in his future not his personal but his children and what they were seeing that they couldn't quite make out was Jeroboam bin Nabat that he was going to lead the people away, he was going to lead them into what became the idolatry of the northern tribes so they decided First of all, Shimon and Levi said... And Shimon and Levi were very, very zealous. And so they wanted to kill him. They said, you know, he's dangerous. It wasn't just jealousy. It looks like that when you have the first reading. It looks like just pure jealousy. But it was more than that. It was a concern that there was something tainted here. Something that they had to worry about. And in fact... We know that we've heard you've when we learned about the golden calf that the Midrash says it's the little plaque that Moshe used to raise up the, the sarcophagus of Yosef off the bottom of the Nile that said rise up O ox that it was taken and it was thrown into that gold and the calf came out kicking and lowing so there was something even about that that was connected with Yosef. So the brothers saw this. They saw that there was something tainted, something to be concerned about that was going to lead the nation astray. And they wanted to kill him. And then Yehuda said, No, no, no. no. We should not be guilty of spilling our own brother's blood. Let's sell him. And of course, you know the rest of the story, how that set all of these events into motion. But the but the whole thing is that Joseph was also destined, not just one time, in an isolated incident, but his line was destined for kingship. The same as Yehuda. But the thing was that it became a point of contention that split the kingdom apart, and then instead of being supportive like Ephraim, and Manasseh, and Benjamin should have been supportive of Yehuda, but they didn't. They, I mean, Benjamin did. I have to back up. Benjamin did. So when the the ten tribes split apart. Benjamin actually stayed with Judah. This is an end, another thing that's interesting. You don't see it in this in this diagram of the encampment, but when the land was was divided out into the tribal land, Benjamin is right beside Yehuda and Benjamin stayed with Judah. And that's another story about why that happened. But the northern tribes Cats are locked in with Ephraim. There's quite a bit of prophecy that does speak about these northern tribes. And the Hav Torah for this Parsha is actually found in the book of Hosea. And Hosea was a prophet. Hosea ben Bari was from the tribe of Rubain. And this is very interesting. And he is a very important prophet a very important prophet. And he's even called the first of the prophets. Now a lot of people have never even read Hosea, So they would say. "Well, Why would he be called the first of the prophets? One reason is. That his prophecy was considered great. But of course that's kind of obvious. But there were several prophets. That prophesied in his day. And he was like the first one of that group of prophets and he lived a very long life he lived to well over 100 years and he lived through the, the reign of four kings so he lived a very long life and he prophesied for a very long time and the whole focus of his prophecy was about the northern tribes and what had happened to them sometimes he would mention Judah but he the real focus of his prophecy was the northern tribes and how they had gone astray. and what was going to happen to them. Now interestingly, when you were you were listening to uh, this teaching of uh, Alan Cecil's a little while ago, I noticed that in that counter anti-missionary um, document that he he had up here that there was a reference to the two house now this two house idea is something that a lot of the messianics had grabbed hold of and they're now um, calling themselves Ephraim and so they're saying that they have an equal claim to the land of Israel an equal claim but they don't want to convert because they don't want to be part of Judah they don't want to be Jews bottom line, they don't want the rabbis to tell them what to do they don't want to really obey the Torah because they have an inside track and they have the light and they know better I'm just telling you from what I've heard what I've read, from talking to them I've met a lot of them and it's sad because their knowledge of Torah a lot of them, their knowledge of Torah is very limited of the average person and their leadership even has a has a rebellious tone to that what they say. And unfortunately, the tone, the rebellious tone of what they're saying sounds all too much like what the Ephraimites of biblical days sounded like. We don't have to do those things. We don't have to go to the temple. We're fine how we are and the not understanding that um, excuse me all the tribes stood at Sinai if you are part of the tribes of Israel you stood at Sinai you accepted the Torah all of the Torah you can't say I only want this part and I don't want that part you accepted all the Torah and following the Torah does not make you part of the tribe of Judah and this was a problem during the time of the northern tribes when they split it was like this rebellion of, we don't want you to tell us what to do we can do what we want and so there was that split and unfortunately it wasn't just a rebellion against Judah it was a rebellion against the Torah it was a rebellion against Hashem himself and it cost them so so dearly now when Hosea began his prophecy he was speaking to Hashem and he said look at what they've done Just why don't you just choose another people and Hashem was like oh what am I going to do with this old man and he says you know what and this is in the first chapter of Hosea he says you know something Go take yourself a wife of harlotry. Go marry a prostitute. And have children of harlotry. And you're thinking to yourself, How in the world could Hashem have given a, a prophet instructions like that? But that's exactly what he did. And then after Hosea had married this woman, her name was Gomar. And Gomar actually means in Hebrew finished. He married her and he had three children. He had two sons and he had a daughter. And they were named these very sad names. And then Shem said, Okay, fine, send them away. And he said, I can't send them away. I have to take care of them. Even if I were. Not sure about her. They're my children. I can't just send them away. And then Hashem said to to him. Aha. Aha. You aren't even sure if they're your children. Because they're children of harlotry. But you don't want to send them away. Yet you told me. To send away my own children. Ephraim. My firstborn. And this is how. The book of Hosea unfolds very poetic very sad but very hopeful at the same time and it's all about this exile of what is happening to these children of the of the northern tribes now, there is a passage in here that I want you to see. And actually the second chapter of Hosea is very, very hopeful. Now one of the one of the children, the, the girl he named, Loruchama, which means no mercy. And the boy he named Lo-Ami, which means, you are not my people. And so then, when he says that he's going to take them back, there is this idea in here where he said that you will not be called, you will not say, you are not my people. Let me just get another, just a second. where it has it verse by verse and it's really incredible because it has also to do with the the relationship between Judah and the northern tribes now in the third verse of the second chapter says say to your brothers my people and to your sisters she who obtains compassion so the son had been called Lo Ami, you are not my people. And the girls had been called Lo Ruchama, no mercy. So now in the second in the third verse of the second chapter, it says say to your brothers Ami and to your sisters Ruchama, beloved. And what this is also saying, there's a kind of an interpretation here that's really beautiful. It's like two each one of these groups is being, this is being set, so Hashem is saying to the Ephraimite people you know, you had this rebellion and now he says, now you say to your brothers, you say to the tribe of Judah me, you are my people you are my people, and then he says to the tribe of Judah he said, and say to your sisters Say to the uh, northern tribes, Ruhama, beloved, you are, you are my brothers. You are one that Hashem has compassion on. So He's saying, turn back to the Torah, and I will be merciful to you. this idea that he's saying to judah to say this he's saying to them to speak to them tenderly and why because when the split occurred what happened the representatives of the northern tribes had come to rechabon the son of solomon and they had said to them if you will deal with us mercifully if you won't deal with us harshly if you will lighten our burden then we'll serve you we'll be one with you we will support you but if you don't we're going to break away and this was um, Jeroboam bin Naboth who went to him and said this and his answer to them was that he was going to be even harder on them than his father, Solomon had been. And so then they said to them said to him, and this was a horrible thing for them to say. I mean when you think about oh my goodness, how these words could have come out of their mouth, they said to him to him, What have we to do with you, O house of David? And they broke. Because what this is, why is this so horrible? What they said is because they were saying Essentially, we want no part of Mashiach. Because House of David, that is Mashiach. That is Mashiach of the spiritual, the final, the ultimate redemption. And so they broke with it. That's what was so sad about it. And that's why the prophets, all of the prophets, came into the northern tribes. And this was Hosea, it was Elijah, it was Elisha, it was Jonah, on and on and on you see this list of the prophets in in the prophets and the majority of them were speaking to the northern tribes because the whole idea was we have to put the kingdom back together so this idea as a little aside here has been hijacked by this Ephraimite movement as they say we are putting the kingdom back together But there's always kind of like, oh my goodness, there's like a falseness that they're going to say we are. And then they're they're really just Christians and they're just wanting, it's another kind of replacement theology. And, you know, the Sanhedrin said to some of their leaders, they said, you know what, you guys, you need to just learn how to be the Nehnoach. You need to learn what that means and then we'll talk because they wanted to just be accepted as northern tribes without having to do anything which is let's just redo this problem and we can go into some of that history too of why that doesn't work so anyway this was the reason that Hashem was saying through the prophet Hosea to say to the people of the north that they should say to Judah you are my people To accept back their place, and you see the the way that Ephraim is supposed to be the support, supposed to be the support at the western side of the tabernacle, while Yehuda is at the eastern side, the front and the back. He's holding up the rear guard, and he's supposed to be dependable as holding up that rear guard. But there was a lot of really sad history with this as Ephraim made alliances with the enemies of Israel and so on very very sad history and essentially then if for all of the northern tribes section by section by section fell and went into captivity and historians would say they disappeared forever nobody knows where they went there's some idea that we know some about where they went and there's a lot of legend about that they are beyond the Shabbatai river and that they'll come back there's a lot of legend about that but there is this idea of Mashiach bin Yosef Mashiach bin Yosef one of the things that he does is gather back these tribes that are lost this is one of the definitions of his mission so we see this in several of the prophets Jonah is considered like a spark Mashiach Yosef. and even some of the kings of Judah like Hezekiah like Josiah had a spark that was defined like Mashiach Yosef because they were reaching out into the nations to gather these people back to Israel it failed it failed in their day generation after generation it failed But it continued, this idea, this mission continued, and it just like rolled on and rolled on, century after century. It was not, it wasn't over. And another thing about Ephraim, about Yosef, Yosef looked, for all intents and purposes, like an Egyptian. He didn't look like the Hebrews. He didn't look like Yehuda. He didn't look like his brothers. He wasn't dressed the same. He didn't speak the same. He looked like an Egyptian. And he had assimilated the the wisdoms of the nations with the wisdom they already had from his father. This made him extremely shrewd, extremely wise. And so this idea of how the people of Israel have gone out into the nations and have become like Nobel, Peace, Nobel Prize winners and incredible researchers and doctors and lawyers and all this is incorporating that wisdom of the nations, incorporating that all of that that actually helps the nations. You know, we have researchers who have brought forth incredible, incredible things to the world from the people of Israel incredible intelligence incredible wisdom that have blessed the world this is Yosef this is exactly Yosef so we see that this is a spark this is a definition of Mashiach ben Yosef that is blessing the nations that goes on in our time and it has gone on through the centuries through all of the history that's the Yosef aspect of Mashiach making life better in this world that's the Yosef aspect of Mashiach making sure people are fed making sure people have cures for diseases making sure there is an answer to things that some brilliant inventor can only think of this is Yosef Yosef was the inventor Yosef was the the mind he was the one who was very very clever and he was the one who didn't have a fear of mixing with the nations, of being, of having kind of a interrelations, interaction with the nations. Yehuda, on the other hand, and the definition of Yehuda, the definition of David, is more inward, and that comes later when the nations come in. Israel. Right now it's Israel going out and that is what we see. We see Israel going out and reaching out the light to the world, the light to the nations is out but when we have the ultimate and final redemption then it's going to be inward and all the nations are going to come in and there's, this is the difference. This is the David aspect of it and this is Yehuda yeah it, it is it is history everything connects with Torah absolutely and so we see this and we see this as an explanation of what goes on around us and we're right now and you, when you hear Messiah right now think Yosef because this is the thing that we have not finished yet this is the the definition the mission that has not been finished it's Yosef. We don't think David. And it's, this is what's wrong with the with the Christian story. Because they only think in terms of one Messiah, one definition. But we had two. We have two manifestations of the spirit of Messiah. And so right now, like I said, we're in this idea of Yosef another thing that's real interesting about this encampment around the Mishkan is that when we will say yeah L'Chadadi is this song that we sing on Shabbat and we say welcome to the bride of Shabbat and what we do when we're welcoming the bride of Shabbat is in every synagogue around the world when we are first in the synagogue we always face east. We're always facing well. No, that's not true. We're always facing whatever direction we would have to face for facing Jerusalem. Whatever direction that is, that's the way we face. If we're in America, we're facing east. If we're in Nitzsbeircha, where I live, we're facing west because we were on the, <laughs> we were we would have to face west. To face Jerusalem. But whatever direction we're in, wherever we are, we face the direction of Jerusalem. And then, when we say the last sentence of the last verse of Lechadovi, where we say, Bohi Kala, Bohi, we're saying, Welcome to the Bright, then we, wherever we are, we turn west. And we bow, because there is this idea, the belief, that the Shchina. Comes back to Israel from the West. What is the West? What is the West? The West is Edom. And the Shechinah is in exile in Edom. So part of this whole idea, part of this whole idea of Mashiach bin Yosef is gathering all of the people back to the land of Israel. Yeah. And when all of the people come back to the land of Israel, it's also rescuing the Shekhinah from Edom. And that's a whole other class. And that will take a long time. But this is the idea behind this. When we face the West and we say, Boi Kala boi, We say, come bride, come. This is the idea. that we're saying, come back. We're asking Hashem to bring back the Shekhinah the presence of Hashem that is captured in, in the exile where all of the Jewish people I mean not all but we have this still exile of all the people of Israel the northern tribes included in exile around the world so that's the meaning behind all of that symbolism and you can see that in the encampment around the tabernacle which is really incredible no that's the way it looks because you're in America and you face the door because your face turning around the opposite direction which happens to be west right exactly it is awesome that Bill uh, looked down and that's why in that verse it says let's go back to that it says in that verse as Hashem directed them in 34 um, the sons of Israel did so according to all that Hashem had commanded Moshe so did they camp next to their standards and so did they journey each one according to his family according to his father's house and so many times so many times when we read like numbers, we go. Oh, this is just dry. It's just numbers, and it's where they camped, and with it. And there's so, so much more to it. There's so much to this. There's a depth to it of why Hashem said it had to be exactly like this, because there was a meaning to it. There was a message in every single thing, and then in the names of the of the leaders in the names of the tribes, in the direction that they camped in, in the standards of their flags of each camp. There was a meaning in every single thing. There's nothing that that is just of no consequence, of just because. There's no just because in the things that Hashem commands. Everything has a purpose. And when we really go into the depths of like the midbar you can see this that everything has such a special purpose such a depth of meaning that we can glean out of it and go wow this is speaking to us it's not just the camps of israel around the mishkan as they you know not just reading something dry in history it is alive it has something to say to us it's telling us about mashiach telling us about the times that we live in and the times that are coming it tells us all of these things if we can just look at it and look into the depths of it and so I'm really encouraging you to print off this article that I wrote some years ago and read it because you're going to see some depth in that and then and just think about and I'm going to write some more about this this year and just think about that there is so much depth that Hashem gives us in every word of the Torah does anybody have any kind of comment or question about this I know that I kind of went over this real quickly because that whole thing about the splitting of the tribes and, and the mission of all the prophets that is a lot a lot of material if you've never read the book of Hosea I would really encourage you to read that too because it is just it's an amazing book it's an amazing story yes it's a lot and I guess you heard that I was I was talking pretty fast trying to get all in (laughs) and it's really exciting too because when you see exactly what you said that all of this connects with that everything connects with the Torah I mean it's really exciting it touches us on so many levels So if you would like to, if you have a question later, you can write me. I will give you my email address. Okay, and I welcome you to write to me. If you have a question, if you have a comment, anything, I welcome you. I'm hoping that at some point we're going to have enough teachers where we can offer more classes on profits and so on because it is, it's a lot. It's a lot to learn. And it's just something that I think that we would, everybody would really benefit from. ran across an English translation of a Hebrew work Miskal meaning wise man can you pronounce it properly for me Miskal that's what it looks like thank you for the new email you said oh and I'm planning to send more Um, I can't promise that you know how regularly it's going to be because of my schedule I am planning to write more and send more out to you we have some people who are interested in actually they're Noahites who live in India and I'm very excited about that and so I'm wanting to try to draw them in as much as possible my hope and my dream is that in the coming year our next step with Noahide Nations is that we're going to get some teachers in the Eastern Hemisphere who can okay, thank you for that who can teach on the schedule for the Eastern Hemisphere, that is uh, Europe and Israel and Asia and uh so we will really be Noahide Nation so you might want to pray about all of that thank you for your new email address I wrote that down Russell so does anybody else have something to add Okay. Then I'm going to say goodnight and thank you for joining me and I hope that all of you have a wonderful week. And remember please that tomorrow night we will not have the class the class healing class, my healing class, and we will not be also having Rabbi Back's class because he's going to be doing shavuot in his house and I'm going to be doing shavuot in my house and And it's like Shabbat. It's another holiday like Shabbat. So we can't be on the Internet. Okay. Thank you, and I hope all of you, like I said, have a great week.